0: hello and welcome back to equity a podcast about the business of startups where we unpack the numbers and nuance behind the headlines I'm Natasha Mascarenas, and this is our Wednesday show where we niche down to a single person, think about their work, and unpack the rest. I am so excited for today. We are talking to Ilana Berkowitz, the founding partner at Springbank Collective and an early stage investor who is working to close the gender gap. But she does much more than just that. She has been an advisor at Eric Schmidt's office, a social entrepreneur who is a former innovator in residence at CARE, a former Obama administration tech policy official across the Obama-Biden transition team. And I hear she's making a spicy shrimp for dinner tonight. So apparently a chef as well. (laughs) Alana, welcome to
1: Equity. Thank you so much for having me. Now I feel a lot of pressure to actually (laughs) cook that meal that I told you about. So thank you for putting me on blast. (laughs) I know we're going to have to fact
0: check you. It is Valentine's Day. So thank you for spending the morning talking about something that obviously gets both of us super flustered Mm -hmm. and excited and just tech the most romantic thing in the
1: world. Absolutely. Well, <laughs> tech what tech once you add in caregiving and aging is just like all kinds of romantic sexiness all over the place.
0: <laughs> love, 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 love. We are gonna talk today about obviously your background, what motivated you to start <laughs> Springback Collective you know where tech does and doesn't fit into solving the problem and what opportunities there are to keep women in the workforce but before we get into all those big macro questions i mean one of my favorite just places to start is like what brings someone into the wild world of wearing a million hats such as yourself like how did you how did you get here and what are
1: you i don't know if you could make a comment thread between all your different jobs what would it be yeah sure for me Do you remember that? Which supermodel was it who said, you know, I don't get out of bed for less than $10,000 a day, like peak 90 supermodel energy? Oh, my God. I think my thing is... I don't get out of bed if I don't think there's a chance that the people I work with might change the world and like fundamentally bend its arc. And I've been really lucky to do that in a whole bunch of different ways. And sometimes it was winning elections. Sometimes it was serving in the government of folks I respected like crazy. Sometimes it has been funding people doing absolutely wild things and tackling pretty bonkers problems and kind of everything in between. And I think for me, so... Given that this is being recorded on Valentine's Day, Happy Valentine's, everybody! Ooh, ooh. My parents very romantically met um, more than forty years ago on a psychiatric ward during psychiatry grand rounds at a public hospital here in New York. Oh my God! Um, my, my, it's like a modern
0: love column also waiting to be written. I don't know if they've considered if you've. I can write it if you let me interview. Oh them. My, I
1: mean, <laughs> they they would love that. They have certainly have tales to tell. My mom is a New York social worker, oh. um, and my father is a geriatric psychiatrist. And my mother, I watched my mother be a caregiver to her mother for many decades of my life. So I've come by by the interests that have informed Springbank, honestly, and over many years. But, you know, in terms of bringing all these sectors together, I think the nature of having worked across private investment capital, social entrepreneurship, the government, some of the largest impact organizations in the world is just this sense that any problem big enough to be worth solving either from a business perspective or from a, how do we, you know, yeah. bend the world or shift the world on its axis is that it's going to probably be a multi-sector solution.
0: I think one of the ways we're making Equity Wednesday over time is like we want to interview what I've been describing as like the silent changemakers in tech. You're not silent and that you've done things that make a loud difference. But I think in terms of when people think about the general venture capital arc, it looks different. It doesn't maybe look so much around policy or taking your time getting into venture. I feel like maybe the stereotype is more like... I was an operator at a big tech company. I left, I became an angel investor and started my own fund one day. And I feel like you're such a different example of that, just to respond to how you're describing it.
1: Yeah, it was definitely like a candy land board of, you know, stopping in a whole bunch of different places. But I think each of those things were building blocks that yeah. let me do what I'm doing now. And, and I'll say, too, on the policy side, because as you know, I can go on about <laughs> public policy. I think especially with the next generation of great companies that we are going to see built here in this moment, all of them are going to, in some way, involve understanding policy. Some of that we see this now, for instance, there's so much energy and excitement right now around climate tech, right? And given the huge investments that we saw coming out of the Inflation Reduction Act, right, that's spurring a ton of innovation. And I think that the funds and the founders who understood early what was going to be in that bill, how they could work with that and sort of accelerate what they were doing are now at a real advantage. I think that we'll see this now, for instance, in... You know, AI, right? There's, I think, a whole emerging field of of what it's going to look like to sort of ethically manage and build policy around AI. And all of these, all of the biggest, most interesting issues are going to have policy and regulation around them. Sometimes we might love that regulation. Sometimes we might hate that regulation. But we do ourselves a disservice if we don't understand it and engage seriously with it and yeah. have the tools to do that, which, you know, I have a lot of experience doing.
0: <laughs> Tell me what inspired Spring Bank Collective. It was founded around 2019? Yes. Be- okay. Yeah. Different time in the world. I mean, Pre-COVID, obviously, but also pre-big yeah. tech boom and everyone starting a venture fund. So walk me through that <laughs> time period.
1: <laughs> yeah. So... We may remember, you know, the Halcyon pre-COVID days would seem very far away. But, you know, I think for me and my partners, we were coming at it from the perspective of what would it take to get women to full economic participation was kind of our our question. I think we've seen a lot of articles and efforts, all of which I respect and support around women on cap tables and female founders. I have been both. I am both. I respect the hell out of both. I also think that those often are symptoms, not causes. Say more. And we, you know, I think, obviously, as my economist husband often reminds me, tech employment in the U.S. is a rounding error, though I would say our impact is much more enormous than a rounding error, obviously. But, you know, I think the sense that obviously addressing that piece of the pie is just it is a small piece in the overall context of the U.S. economy. And so we have this real question, of like, what is the missing infrastructure that helps working women and their families work and thrive and do all the things. And so, you know, for us, it has these three verticals around inclusive work, the care economy, and household consumer, because of course, women sit as the sort of CFOs and chief purchasing officers of most households. And originally, we started doing SPVs around deals in the space that we're really excited about with kind of a handpicked community of folks in our network that we thought could really accelerate the companies we were investing in who were chief people officers at huge companies who are the you know heads of healthcare at enormous retailers, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. To see, you know, were we getting deals that we love that were amazing? Were we getting access? Were we adding value? Was there enough out there to do? And then, you know, we kind of convinced ourselves and thanks to a lot of awesome investors, apparently convinced a bunch of other folks as well that they I think mean, this was the real moment and we needed to meet it. We started investing against the thesis prior to COVID. Mm-hmm. And I think it feels weird to say there was a silver lining to COVID, but I guess for us, it made the invisible work of care and caregiving really visible, right? I think so often, whether it's paid caregivers or folks at home doing unpaid labor, you know, in the mornings, in the evenings, in the middle of the night, we often don't see that. And then all of a sudden, for those of us who were lucky enough to be able to work from home, all of a sudden, we were watching our coworkers on Zoom having like a pet on their shoulder and a kid on their other shoulder. And
0: the vulnerability was like unmatched. I feel like even when I was interviewing people, it was very much like for like six months, those first six months, especially, we were just in everyone's lives fully and there was no way to unsee it. So, I mean, I agree with you that it's a silver lining and that totally. it definitely made a shared fluency around it.
1: 100, was that right? Also, we had kind of this shared vocabulary of seeing people who we work with care for others. People got to see who we were caring for. And the vast majority of Americans in the workforce identify as caregivers certainly north of two-thirds. You know, one of the things we saw very early in the pandemic, of course, though it evened out in some ways, was folks leaving the workforce because of these caregiving responsibilities when all of a sudden with COVID, no one had yeah. access. Many of us did not have access to child care. And we know that, for instance, just by 2030, the U.S. could be losing roughly $290 billion in GDP each year as a result of the growing care crisis. So it's this huge opportunity just hiding in plain sight, both for really innovative businesses to build cool stuff, but also, frankly, to just really help American families. Because what we know is that, what's the number one reason people leave the U.S. workforce? Retirement. What's the number two reason? Caregiving responsibilities.
0: Yeah. We just had someone on the podcast last week, SJ Sacchetti from Clio, who stepped away from her post as CEO of the company to take care of a parent and then has come back as like a chief business officer. And we were talking about this like weird stigma around stepping away and how do you know when to step away and it was both like how do we make room for us to allow caregiving responsibilities to make you pause work but also how do we make sure that there's infrastructure which sounds like your investment thesis so that people don't have to do that too it's like this constant tension and I have to ask in terms of like starting a new effort around versus joining one clearly just like based on your connections I'm guessing you could have joined another mm-hmm. group of people trying to do this work. Like, was it a lack of focus in this area that made you want to start something? Or was there something else that made
1: you feel like there needed to be a new venture firm yeah. around it? So I think there's probably a bunch of reasons. One, is it possible that I was too used to being an outdoor cat to be an indoor cat again? I don't know. <laughs> that is totally possible. Also, my two co-founders who I went to business school with, who have really different experiences than I do, are just badass. And I wanted to build something with them. Yeah. And then I think we were at the moment when we first started working on this, our approach to gender lens investing was just really different. You know, as mentioned, like we have founders of every background in our portfolio that we're super proud to support. We do not only back female founders. Our lens is much more, like when this is a multi-billion dollar company, will it asymmetrically change or save women's lives? And I think, frankly, we just weren't seeing folks working with that same thesis and opportunity set. You know, and I think for folks who are larger funds, many of whom I collaborate with all the time and respect the hell out of, at that time, some of these spaces were still seen as niche. And so, you know, I think we see this certainly, for instance, in women's health, right? The sense of like, well, we did a women's health investment this year. Okay. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Right. And that's a perfect segue. What is women's health to you today? How should people be talking about it? Because there's so many different frameworks and I certainly have thoughts on this. Oh my gosh.
1: I want to hear all about them. (laughs) I think we could go on this one for, for quite a while. For me, critically, women's health goes well beyond fertility. Women's lives go far beyond our reproductive capacity. And on the one hand, I am so thrilled that people are paying more attention to the fertility and birthing space, and we're seeing more investments. We're investing in an awesome company called A Life, alongside our friends at Lux. Yeah, Lux and Even Square Ventures, which is around AI and machine learning for the critical decision-making points in, in the fertility and the IVF journey. So I think there's a ton of room for innovation there. And I'm really excited for anything that drives costs down instead of just spreading cost around. But at the same time, I also think when we think about women's health and their lives, we need to go bigger beyond, frankly, things that involve breasts and vaginas. There is so much more. For instance, 70% of chronic pain sufferers are women. Almost two thirds of dementia diagnoses are women. So there's a lot of common health conditions that impact everybody, but that impact women in the majority or differently that I think we have not spent enough time and investment dollars on.
0: I think one thing that always distracts me you've talked about this is like when women's health is only looked at in the reproductive journey side which is complex in its own right which sucks because then it's like it's not that we don't want innovation there we just want it more holistic and excuse that this is just like too simplistic of a question but I've been hearing the phrase holistic health hormonal health like all these like versions of women's health that are trying to look at it more thoroughly been promised, especially in the beginning of the pandemic. And, you know, I don't know if we should be thinking in years, should we be thinking in decades? Where do you get patience or lack of patience when looking at investments? Because Mm -hmm. I don't know, some of it always feels so far fetched and futuristic, too. it's, It's as simple as looking at a woman or or just someone who has different health needs as like a full person versus one of their organs. (laughs) A hundred percent.
1: Right. And and so often like women who might be experiencing one women's health condition like PCOS are actually experiencing multiple other conditions and symptoms. And so where are they entering the healthcare system? So on the one hand, I think there's a lot that has changed over the last couple decades and a lot of work left to do. As we were talking about before, This June is going to mark the 30th anniversary of when the NIH, uh, the National Institutes of Health law was passed, the NIH Revitalization Act, that mandated for the first time that you actually, shocker, have to include women and folks of color in NIH-funded clinical trials and research. Right. I mean, that is why. Imagine. That was only 30 years ago. That was so recently. Right. I mean, we've all heard these examples, right? Of like, what happens when you design when all the crash test dummies in cars? Sure. When you're learning how to do, you know, when we were figuring out seatbelts were men. Anyway. Even
0: AI today, it's all coming up again is like bias and how we train things.
1: Right. Right. These sort of set of issues, I think, are never over. They're just trained. We're constantly training them and readdressing them um, against a different set of tools. Yeah. So, you know, I think one thing we see a lot is just how are we taking women's pains seriously? And I'll also note too, especially there's huge differences here for women of color. And we know that Black women, including higher income Black women, have worse maternal health outcomes and face unbelievable amounts of racial discrimination in the healthcare system where where sort of their stories and their pain is not taken seriously. So just to say that we're seeing a lot of exciting areas. You know, you mentioned hormone health. There's a lot of stuff around gut health going on and, and other sort of microbiome things where I think the science is early and I'm really excited to see more. And I'm excited that there's a bunch of studies coming out right now from a number of hospital systems. I think in terms of the speed and pacing, I think a lot of entrepreneurs are experiencing this, that when amazing founders crash up against the actual time horizons of a lot of health systems and insurers, those look really different. Yeah. So, you know, health plans now are already figuring out what they're going to be purchasing and paying for, you know, two years ahead of time. So some of the cycle time differences we see are there of just knowing that, if you want to reach enormous scale, and if you want to reach enormous scale with folks who can't just do cash pay, the time horizon impact is going to be a number of years, even though that's frustrating in some ways. I'm actually really excited about it because I think we saw this first wave of digital health innovation that was often D to C was very often cash pay. And I think there was a lot that was so exciting there. Mm -hmm. But also the percentage of Americans who can cash pay for healthcare is really small. So though it slows down the sort of time for these companies to grow and see revenue, the chances to actually serve the other 90% of Americans, that's the big business opportunity and the game changer, right?
0: It sounds like, I wonder what's like in vogue right now in terms of venture-backable healthcare business models. Because it sounds like Mm -hmm. DTC did have this boom. And I'm not seeing those companies getting funded as loudly, at least, before we have some unicorns in the space that I'm certainly watching like grow. But Mm -hmm. yeah, is there a certain business model that comes to mind when you're talking about something that checks those
1: boxes? Mhm. So you know, one thing is to say, even though I think you know we've moved to another part of the cycle, I think there's a ton of stuff we're taking from that D2C healthcare moment, right? Of like what truly responsive, patient-centric care could look like, what it looks like when you can text your physician, what it looks like when you don't have to wait on hold for 30 minutes to book an appointment. So you know, right. I think that resetting of consumer expectations. Of what healthcare can and should be is certainly to the good. I think there's certainly examples where B to C virtual first model makes sense. I think we've seen a lot of resetting. I feel like there's this moment in the beginning of COVID where there was a sense of like everyone wants to do all virtual visits all the time. Yeah, and that has obviously reset very dramatically. I do think there's some areas of specialty care where that virtual first model really makes sense. So, for instance, we were an early investor in a company called Plume, which is now the largest trans healthcare company in the world, and In their case, many, many trans folks do not have any gender affirming care providers who live anywhere near them. Right. And like this, this kind of model is fundamentally the only model that really makes sense to be providing that care at scale. I think similarly, you know, we're seeing a lot of durability with folks still wanting to do mental health visits remotely, which makes a ton of sense, just like in the practicality of all of our lives. Right. Especially since it doesn't require a physical exam in the same way as other Parts of care and then it also gets into this provider shortage issue as well on the mental health care side. So for instance, I'm just going to keep shouting out my portfolio companies because I love <laughs> them. So, um, but for instance, we're investors in a company called Little Otter. It's a family mental health platform. And part of the big problem that they're solving is that more than 70% of counties in the United States do not have a single, a single child psychiatrist in it in a moment where kids and their families are in crisis like never before sure. and have where possible enormous willingness to pay. But you find these you like two months, six months, eight month wait lists to see providers.
0: It's like, And I think the stats that you just shared in that part was like, it's so mind boggling to me. And I am so happy you said it out loud because I think there's a little bit of like fatigue around it, but it still is important to just say so people hear it. But I want to shift us a little bit and ask about something that came up during our prep call, which is like we're talking a lot about like the big problems and the big ideas, the disruptive ideas that are trying to solve it. What are the low hanging fruits? to keep women in the workforce to think about our care economy in like a more holistic way? And I'm I'm talking, this can be as simple as a startup or even like a policy or something that you want more founders to be talking about. When I say like, yeah, just something
1: easier or a first step. Is there anything that comes to mind? So many things. So one practical tool later this month We'll be coming out with our friends over at Allrays with a guide to taking and designing paid family leave for Series B and earlier founders. We've just been getting a lot of questions about it within our own portfolio of folks. Where, Shout out. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, ho- hopefully it'll be useful. We've gotten to talk to a lot of amazing founders who grappled with it and some paid leave experts also. Look, the real is when you're not a fang company, designing a paid leave policy that works for your budget, for your culture, for your employees is not easy. So we figured instead of writing it once, let's just open source it and write it together. So that is one resource I hope will be useful. You know, look, there was a lot happening over the last couple of years in HR tech and folks that were selling through chief people officers and and sort of benefits buyers, I think, in this market We may see some challenges there, but I think that we were seeing a lot of excitement on that dimension, I think, in part because there was a real acknowledgement from employers that if they wanted butts in seats, whether that is a virtual butt is a virtual seat, I guess, or in, in the office, that those folks needed to have access to care. And whether that's children, elder, specialty care, et cetera, it has been, you know, there's a very clear kind of ROI on keeping people in the workforce, fewer missed days. And this isn't just like a white collar worker issue. I think we're seeing increasingly like as a benefit throughout the workforce. So, you know, we're seeing folks in our portfolio who provide care benefits to employers being picked up by folks like, you know, Hyatt and the best yeah. guys of the world who know that if they want an hourly workforce to show up, they need to not have three toddlers <laughs> in tow.
0: Right. I mean, if we bring it like right to like the leadership suite, because I'm guessing those are the people you're talking to the most when you're talking to startups. Like one idea that recently came up during last week's pod was like, is there an idea of like tech and just the way we think about workforces looking more collective instead of putting the pressure on one founder or one chief executive? I'm curious what you think, like if, how, how much you think about tech, I guess, getting closer to thinking about community as part of like a leadership strategy, if I'm phrasing that correctly. Yeah.
1: Oh, my gosh. Well, I love that idea. And I want to do I want to do more thinking on it. And certainly, look, I think you don't want to have a team where there's any sort of one point of failure or one bottleneck. where Only one person who might go out on paid family leave knows a certain person's information or contacts or context. So I think some of that stuff is table stakes. One other thing that I I think we're seeing a lot of that I think is really cool is on the policy, internal to company policy, is a lot more startups offering paid leave where it is the same, where it's equal for men and women for birthing parents and non birthing parents. That's great. And I think that's a really big thing, right? Like we set that culture from the jump when you have. Women taking four months of leave and men who are like, I took a weekend and now I'm back. You know, the data is pretty clear that we then see over longer time horizons that those folks are not sort of evenly dealing with the massive unpaid workload that American families are doing every day.
0: Yeah, I think evenness is such a good way to put it. And like when you're doing due diligence on startups, what you you invest at the early stage. How early are we talking?
1: Uh, we do pre-seed through Series A, okay. uh, majority seed. But so we're, we're talking to folks quite early.
0: Okay, got it. So you're probably playing a role in them shaping these policies that are going to then guide their companies. Two questions. How much of it is like a mandate that you want to see a company when they pitch you that they are thinking about this stuff thoughtfully? Versus I was just reading about Kapoor Capital and how their portfolio companies have to kind of sign on to this founders agreement to build an inclusive work place and it was one of the first like policies in venture. And I'm just wondering how you create infrastructure as a venture firm and when you invest. Yeah, I don't know if you're looking for companies thinking about these things or if you are okay with just helping them get there. I'm sure yeah. it's somewhere in the middle.
1: <laughs> sure. Listen, we're we're obviously early days here in fun one. And for right now, we do not have a mandate around it. I think at the end of the day, all the companies we're backing, it's about The founders and the founding team and amazing founders who want to win. And we also believe that you can want to win and have all the skills to win. And I'll obviously also be kind people who are building amazing cultures. I think right now for us, sort of mandates on this are not going to work. We want to just be champions and supporters for folks as they try to think through those policies. Mm -hmm. The folks on our team have built those policies before they figured out the sort of finances of running those policies. So we want to really be a resource and part of the team.
0: I guess just phrasing the question a little differently. I'm I'm saying more along the lines of like when you're talking to founders, what are you looking for that might be different than other VC firms? Because I'm guessing it they need to show and they need to be like you said for example, founding team. I think that even differs from the person that's looking for like the one founder that is like the moonshot that's going to get a company farther. But is there anything else in that area that you can kind of hint on when you're when you're looking at companies?
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, this isn't a screen, but just sort of a point of perspective, right? I think we all know the data that the most successful founders are typically actually in their early 40s, as much time as we spend, obviously, celebrating younger founders. We have many folks in our portfolio in that category. But I am always curious to get a read on do folks kind of have the eq around the kind of teams they want to build knowing that often you're going to want to put people in seats who've done parts of the job before not all of it but parts of it and if you want experienced leadership teams at your company they're often going to be folks who have lives outside of work that you want to make sure you are ensuring they can be thriving in both places so i think there's always sort of getting a read of your founding team of like do they get how to build the experienced team that they want to have and what are the implications not just obviously on culture and comp, but also on thinking through some of these other benefits.
0: Yes. Okay. This is exactly why I was so excited to have you on the show after our prep call, because I think that nuance is so key. Well, one story that I have been wanting to write forever is about ageism in tech, which is not a hot take that it exists, but specifically around the kinds of founders we consider as like most disruptive. Why do they have to look like someone who just dropped out of grad school in their early 20s? And why can they not look older and more experienced? And I don't know. I mean, I'm sure it's something that you've- Thought about so much over the years.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think part of it too is that at least when I look at the companies that I have backed that have been most successful, in many cases, I have not seen as much of a pattern as I thought. We have some founders who, you know, are in their 50s who have fully lived the problem they are solving. We have some amazing founders who started the company in their mid 20s after leaving places like Stripe and Square to solve some really wonky challenges around family leave benefits, but they just saw a big opportunity. And interestingly, because now they've been at it for a while, those folks are now having their own kids and are growing into another life stage. But the truth is, you know, we've backed founders all over the map, but I totally agree with you that I think coming in with any particular preconception of what that killer team is going to look like is a bit of a fool's errand.
0: (laughs) Right, exactly. You, You wrote this really great column for TC. Which I didn't know, but you wrote it <laughs> in 2021 with Sarah, the CEO of Winnie, about how it's time for the VC community to stop overlooking the child care industry. And I also wonder if that comes back down to what we're talking about, just like what happens when you've lived and understand that child care is something to struggle with. And I'm guessing that happens more as we see diversification of VCs, as we see diversification of founders that VCs want to back. On both ends, I think there needs to be probably, yeah, I don't know, a broader perspective on like what's a venture-backable company and what does venture aim to serve even?
1: Totally. But also, let's be really clear-eyed about it, which is we want to be investing in huge businesses right. that we believe can be in huge markets. And I think, you know, one of the things that's interesting in the caregiving space broadly is there are a lot of huge pockets of money, whether from government, from employers, from insurance companies and we want to really lean into that and make sure that we're investing in companies that are accessing that while also kind of building this care infrastructure. And it's tough, right? Which is, you know, for instance, in the child care space, the average American family is spending 20% of their income caring for younger children. Yeah. And the average care worker is making 12 bucks an hour and could be making more at Starbucks, at Chipotle, at lots of other places to do hard work. So there's parts of, frankly, the care economy that I think we have to be clear-eyed that are quite hard to make venture-scale returns on. There's other parts where I think there's enormous opportunity, like we've seen, for instance, a lot of interest around young folks who are neurodivergent, right? And a key reason for so much investor interest in this space is that every state has enacted a mandate requiring insurance carriers to cover services for autism spectrum disorders. So people can actually build quite large businesses pretty fast in that space. So this is another space, too, where understanding government and government flows of money is useful because it's easy to see where the big opportunities are.
0: Yeah. No, thank you for identifying that. Somehow we are already at 30 minutes. So I think we need to officially move to the lightning round. Are you ready to jump in? I'm going to try not to respond to your fun answers. Okay. I'm ready. (laughs) Okay. Number one, what would you be if you weren't an investor? I would be a
1: snack critic.
0: Like, what kind of snacks? I mean, She asked as a follow-up.
1: <laughs> Honestly, literally all snacks. I I used to be in high school, a food reviewer for my high school paper. Oh my God. I, And I just feel like I'm ready to do it again. I have encyclopedic knowledge of the snacks of New York City because I basically never leave. So that is that is my next journey.
0: Okay. Well, we need to get you on TikTok or Instagram and doing it Love as it. a yes, side gig because you have so much extra time. Yeah. Very relaxed days. over here. Super chill. <laughs> Um, number two, what is one thing you've had to unlearn in your career?
1: You know, I think I definitely have a little bit of those impulses of the kid who, when you have to do the group science fair project, you just do it all by yourself. Ooh. Unlearning that and working with badass, amazing people in the right way. The trust fall. It matters so much. A hundred percent.
0: Well, i on a more positive one. So I'll start with what's the worst advice you've ever received? This can be
1: personal or professional or somewhere in between. Um, I will not mention who it was. It was a notable person who told me that I should only ever wear high heels in the workplace. Boo! Boo. And also, all of my high heels post COVID are in my storage unit, so, so it would be <laughs> difficult to implement.
0: I wore them. I wore the heels on stage at Disrupt, and I just the moment I got, I think on like as I was getting on stage, I took them off. I was like, "No, it will be here
1: to sit, and that is all." <laughs> yeah, listen, have the occasional no roll when you were when you were you know bringing a look together, but otherwise a hard pass. Yes,
0: thank you, Cosign. Mm-hmm. Heavy.
1: What is the best advice that you have ever received? A great piece of advice that I got from a friend of mine who is also an LP of ours, used to be one of my my bosses in in Obama Land was talking about how sometimes you're reaping and sometimes you're sowing and there's times in your career, you know, that'll feel flashy, like you're getting to show the results of your work, right? I think often in tech, we celebrate the big reveal, right? The product launch, the fundraise, et cetera, but that most of life is the rest of it is the sowing and the learning and the doing hard things in quiet. And that's, that's the real work and do the real work.
0: Wow. I think I needed that. So thank you for saying that. And the final lightning round question, what is one thing that people should be talking about in the care industry that is not getting enough of a spotlight?
1: I would say that it is nursing shortages. We just saw major nursing strikes here in New York City. One in three nurses are considering leaving the direct caregiving workforce. At the same time, we know that we just need a ton of nurses over the next 10, 20 years, right? 10,000 people turn 65 every day in the U.S., They need our care. It's also a huge market. The U.S. is going to need to produce 20 new nurses for every sort of turbine technician or solar installer over the next 10 years. And I think, honestly, there's so many cool companies that we're seeing building in this space to think about it, whether it's AI that can be enablers around automating more repetitive tasks so nurses can get time back in their schedule, technology and marketplaces to do a better job of bringing in an international nursing workforce, a whole bunch of other, you know, coaching and mental health supports for the nursing workforce. I just think there's so much to do here. It's one of the largest groups of employees in the United States, and they help all of us. And, you know, let's do more to support them and build awesome products that they can use. And
0: on a scale of one to ten, how excited are we about the current state of nursing startups that are out there trying to solve this shortage? Like, are we excited about them? Or are we yeah, like,
1: yeah, I'm pretty excited. I'm actually diligent on a couple of pretty cool things now, and awesome. it's been interesting seeing really. Different kinds of founding teams coming everywhere from the nursing industry themselves to like all of the top Silicon Valley startups who are building crazy, interesting stuff in the space right now. And I would love to see more.
0: Alana Berkowitz, thank you so much for coming to Equity. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, my God. Where can people find you and Springbank Collective and, you know, best way to pitch you as well? I'm sure there's going to be people who want to do that.
1: Of course. Well, you can find me on my very occasional Twitter, which is at Alana B. Okay. Our website is springbankcollective.com. We can discuss later why we chose such a long URL, uh, but you can find us there and there is a open email there and we are always happy to hear from folks and want to know what you're up to and what you're building.
0: Yay. Okay. Well, I just followed you on Twitter. I'm sorry I didn't do so beforehand, here I am. (laughs) Better late than never. Right. Um, Everywhere else, you can find me on Twitter at nmask underscore or on Instagram at Natasha the reporter. And we will be back soon with more equity content. Enjoy the rest of your week. Woohoo. Bye. Equity Wednesdays are hosted by myself, TechCrunch senior reporter, Natasha Mascarenas. We're produced by Teresa Locansolo with editing by Kel Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. Alyssa Stringer leads audience development and Henry Picavet manages TechCrunch audio products. Thank you so much for listening and we'll be back next week.